Rabbi Silber, are you ready to start? I am. It's five o'clock, right? I mean, yep. it's 10 o'clock, your time. <laughs> yeah, depending okay, on the time begin. zones. Great. Depending I just, where you are. I just want to um, welcome everyone. Good morning or good afternoon, depending on your time zone. Uh, welcome to our fourth session of our journey through Genesis, Joseph and Jacob with Rabbi David Silber. Um, just to explain uh, some of our Zoom etiquette, I will invite you to become a panelist as you join the Zoom. Um, you can choose to accept that, and that just means that you can turn your camera on so we can see you if you wish. And it also means that when Rabbi Silver invites comments or questions, you will be able to unmute yourself and ask them yourself. Um, when you're not speaking, we just ask you to stay on mute so uh, so that we don't get background noise and we can all hear each other. Um, if you forget, don't worry, I will mute you. Um, and uh, if you want to speak, you can use the hand, putting your hand up function on Zoom when we have questions. It's in the little button that says reactions. Um, or you are very welcome to put your questions or your comments in the Zoom chat. Uh, and if you're joining us on Facebook Live, uh, then you can put your comments and questions as a comment on the video and I will bring them to the Zoom. Um, I will be following along with Rabbi Silver on Safari, so you can see the sources there. But of course, you're very, very. welcomed and encouraged to uh, follow along in your own Tanakh. Um, over to Rabbi Silver. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, okay, so we're up to chapter 44. At the end of 43, uh, the brothers have come to back to Egypt. And they're actually invited into the house of Yosef himself. And that actually concerns them. But they are reassured by the fellow in charge of the house, Beit Yosef, as it's called, that everything's fine. And that the money that they say they found in their sacks must be a gift from heaven. Uh, and everything is good. And they eat with Yosef. And at the end of the um, chapter, the previous chapter, we're told that when the brothers eat with Yosef, two interesting things. First of all, the Egyptians eat separate from Yosef and the brothers, and the brothers eat separately from Yosef and the Egyptians. So in other words, Yosef eats with nobody. And nobody would eat with Yosef. The Mitzrayim won't eat because he's an Ivri, and the Ivrim don't eat with the Viceroy of Egypt. That's one interesting feature. In the last verse of chapter 43, it says that portions were served by Yisam Rasot Mi'et Panav, the 34th verse, the last verse of chapter 30, 43. Um, before that, so when they sit at the table, they are seated, and they're seated in the order of birth. And the men were amazed that how could he how could he know this? Remember that all the brothers were born within seven years. So there's very, very little difference in age between them. And somehow this viceroy of Egypt is able to seat them in the in the correct order. And that's quite amazing. Now, why does Joseph in fact do this? What is his motive? In the case of Yosef, always he clearly has plans. So we are entitled in the case of Yosef to always search for a motive. In this case, the motive seems quite clear from what follows, namely that Yosef wants to 
tell them that fundamentally he has ability to find out truths that other people cannot know. In point of fact, actually, that is true of the Joseph story in general. It's a story about somebody who has access to secret knowledge. He gets his secret knowledge through, through dreams, and he also is able to interpret the dreams of others. So he's a person who has access to, to secrets. But in this particular case, with see, seeing them in the size order or age order in the, his house, he's actually setting up something else. Because what he's setting up, what he's about to do in chapter 44, is to place a silver goblet into the sacks of one of the brothers. And the silver goblet, which will be placed in the sack of one of the brothers, is not to be, is not to be confused with the kestep that is returned. The gavia, the goblet, in chapter 44, which, which, which the Yosef used them stealing, um, that goblet is made out of silver. Was that verse? Um, let's see. It's uh, found later in. Oh, here it is, right at the beginning of chapter 44, actually. Uh, two. It's verse one and two. Let's read verse one. Verse one is by Yitzhak, Yetashel Beito, Beimar. Fill up their sacks with food, as much as they can carry. And put the money of each one, the kesef, literally silver. You say money or silver, translated silver. Put their silver back in the bags. But the silver goblets, to the youngest one, return, uh, put my silver goblet, and also the money that he paid uh, for the food, kesef shivro, shever is the food that you buy. So the gavia hakesef, in other words, the claim will be, and later on it's explicit, that's not any ordinary goblet. It's a dividing goblet. And in order to, um, to, make this point stronger, what he does is he seats them at the table and presumably the goblet, right, that he drinks from, it's a, it's a drinking goblet, obviously, probably sitting on the table. And the claim that will be made later is that this is the goblet that he uses to, to divide. So you didn't just take Kesef. The Kesef is returned to all the brothers, including the youngest, and the Kesef was returned last time, but this is not the same thing. This is the, 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 the goblet of silver. And the goblet of silver, later on, will explicitly, uh, he'll tell them explicitly, this is what he uses to, to, to divide. Before we jump into this matter, in one second we will, I just wanted to go back to the very last verse, verse 34 of the previous chapter. So first he sees them in its correct order, and they're all amazed. And in the last verse, by Yisam Masot, they ate Panav Aliyam. So he serves Masot, here probably means a portion, a serving. He brings servings to them. But he gives Binyamin, the youngest brother, his own full brother from his mother, 
he gives him five times the portions, or maybe it's gifts, it's hard to know, five times, chamesh adult, five times as many as the others, vayishtu, vayishkuruimo, and they drank, and they they were intoxicated together with him. So these verses over, he's invited to the house, he has a festive meal, special meal, he, he prepares special food for them, prepare meat for them. They eat meat, the Hebrews. But what has Joseph done at the end of chapter 43? First of all, he has said, told them by way of the of the seating arrangement that he has special power, special powers of discernment. He can know things other people don't know. It's a magical way of knowing. Number two, that for whatever reason, he favors the youngest child. Gives the youngest child five times as much, five times as much as the other brothers. I'll come back to that in one minute. And thirdly, he gives them to drink when they become somewhat intoxicated. And when you become somewhat intoxicated in the book of Breshit and in life too, your thinking is not as clear. You can be easily fooled or tricked. So what Joseph seems to be setting up over here, given what follows, he's setting up the opportunity to somehow trick his brothers, to fool his brothers, to manipulate, as he seemingly has done. The question is, to what purpose? So Rabbi let me just Silver, make a, sorry, could yes. I interrupt for a second? Would it be possible to just adjust your camera slightly so we can see your full face? It's okay, easier to hear for people who okay. aren't here so well. Thank you. I can't. I can't see my own face, so I don't know why that. Okay, is. just uh, bring it down a little bit if you're on a laptop. Um, if you're on a laptop, then bring it slightly that we can see your, your, I think we can see you now. Yeah. Is that better? Yes. Okay, fine. Good. All right. So in, in any event, um, Thank okay. You. So in any event, let's start with this giving Benjamin five times the amount of the others. There are two observations I have to make about this giving him five times the others. One is that the number five is a number that runs through the Joseph narrative. We'll come across the number five many times. The, Joseph will say to us whether there are five more years of, of famine. Um, there are, uh, later on, when he apportions the land, the, uh, the priests get one, one out of five, one fifth, four portions, and the fifth portion goes to the priests. When, when Joseph will send delegates to, um, Paro to speak for the brothers, who makes he takes five brothers. When Israel leaves Egypt, Chamushim, whatever Chamushim means, armed or, or having uh, having things they need for the journey, Chamushim. So the word Chamesh, it is curious, appears many times in the Joseph narrative. And this is another example. He gives Benjamin five times. I'll make a suggestion later, not today necessarily, about why the number five is the number that appears in the, in the, in the story of Joseph. Um, but the other thing that's interesting about this, the number five in this particular situation, they wrote this, they're eating together. The brothers are actually eating with Joseph. Um, they don't know it's Joseph. But they're actually eating with Joseph. Uh, when you eat together, often it forms a kind of uh, bond. We have that in other places of the Torah. So over here, it's interesting that if you, if you consider that 
if everybody gets one portion and Benjamin gets five portions, so assuming that Joseph has one portion, that means that Joseph and Benjamin have six portions and the brothers have six portions. There are, I mean, the sons of Leah, I would say, have six portions. So there's a, perhaps, some kind of statement being made over here about Rachel and Leah being somehow on the same, having the same, the same uh, significance with the family. I don't know. Come back to that. But number five is a number that runs through the story, and it's quite interesting. Um, in any event, what is Joseph doing over here? Number one, he's telling them, in effect, he has special powers. Number two, by giving Benjamin more portions than anybody else, he's suggesting that somehow Benjamin is the favorite in Joseph's eyes. And we know that Benjamin was the favorite in Yaakov's eyes because all the brothers were sent down to Egypt to get food except for Benjamin. For Jacob had said, lest misfortune overtake him. Well, if the road is dangerous, it's as dangerous for all the other brothers as it is for Benjamin. It's true he's the youngest, but he's probably one or two years younger than the others. So the fact of the matter is that what Joseph is doing, in other words, if in fact, what Joseph is doing, setting up or a situation in which, in which Binyamin is in the same place as Yosef, this would be a good thing to do. And if he's out to trick them, to deceive them, getting them a little tipsy doesn't hurt either. So here we have, on one hand, it's a very pleasant meal, they're all sitting together, but the last two verses, he sees them in a certain way, which is very surprising. He favors one of them, who already probably is favored, and he lowers their ability to think clearly. That's what you have at the end of chapter 43. The question is always why? What is his strategy? What is his, what is his goal, actually, more than strategy? What does he want to do? And now he instructs the man in charge of his house in the first two psukim to return their money once again, the kesef. But as far as the youngest one is concerned, he says, give him back his kesef and also put inside his sack this uh, guvia, this, this silver goblet. Uh, I just want to say one, one or two things and I'll stop and take some comments, but here there's an interesting question about returning their money once again. In other words, they, the first time the money was returned and they were worried about that. Why, why is the money in our sacks? They came back to the house of Joseph and the fellow in charge said, ah, God gave you a gift. But obviously the, when they found the money, they were very concerned and Yaakov was concerned. Come back with all this money. Where's the money from? And your brother's missing. So Yaakov's suspicious, something bad happened. Question over here is, once again, is Joseph returning their money with their knowledge or without their knowledge? The Ramban argues here that in this particular case, they know the money is being returned. That's what the Ramban suggests. He says, this time, he just says to them, you know, and maybe I caused all the trouble, this and that. You can take the food for nothing. Here's, here's, here's it. it, it Take your money back. That's what the Ramban thinks. The truth of the matter is that one could argue quite the opposite, that once again, Joseph has placed the money unbeknownst to them inside their sacks. And now the question is, of course, the question is always why he does that. Why does he return their money? In the past, we suggested two possibilities. 
One is to set up a test to create suspicion. And the other is, is there, 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 there is brothers. Why would you take money for your people? They're hungry, you give them food, you don't charge them money. So that's always a possibility. Over here, there's a big difference, I think, if they know or don't know. Because if they don't know, if they don't know, then, and they, and they see the money in their sacks, then they have to, and then they find the goblet in Benjamin's sack. If that's the, if that's the story, then they would suspect that the same way they know they didn't take any money, so probably Binyamin didn't take the goblet either. That's one possibility. The question is though, do they actually know that the money is in their sacks? Because if you look later on in the chapter, after they, Joseph sends his fellow out to catch up with them, and he says to them, you did a terrible thing. Joseph instructs him to say to them in verse four, why did you repay, good, why did you pay, repay me with evil for all the good I did? You took the goblet of, of my master, says this fellow. And he divines within, verse number five, you did a terrible thing. And the brothers answer in verse number seven, they give a response. By love, they say in verse seven, why do you accuse us of these things? God forbid that your servants should do such a thing. And then they say in verse number eight, they say, of course we didn't, he, none of us stole this, got the silver goblet. Because, hey, look, the money we found in our sacks, we brought back. How then can we you accuse us of stealing silver or gold from the master's house? If we even went back to return the money, how much more so, we, is it obvious, we would not steal anything. Now, we just look what happens. So what happens is, so the, then the fellow says, okay. And in verse number 11, we'll come back to those verses, but in verse 11, it says, maharu. each one hurried up. They put their sacks on the ground. And they opened up the sacks. And then in verse number 12, he searched. He started with the oldest and then down to the youngest, the same way Joseph had seated them at the table. And the goblet was found in Binyamin's sack. So first of all, they open up the sacks. They say, they say, we wouldn't steal a goblet. We even return the money. How could we be accused of stealing a goblet? Okay, so... And then they say, whoever took it should die. We'll be slaves also. So the servant says, no, whoever will be a slave and the rest of you can go home. You're innocent. They, they hurried and opened, took down the sacks on the ground, opened them up. But then in verse number 12, we switch from the plural of which is plural, which is plural, to the single, singular. He searched. And he found it. So it's not clear to me, actually. In other words, the question is, did they know that the money was returned or not? Rabban thinks yes. Uh, and truth be told, I don't really see that in the text, but that's what the Rabban, that's the Rabban suggestion. But the point is, then they, if, they, if they don't know, then perhaps 
and they find the money in their sacks, they would know that that Binyamin is being framed or suspect Binyamin is being framed possibly. But it's not clear that they actually know the money's in the sacks because they take the sacks down, but the searching, the searching of the sacks is not done by them. The searching in verse number 12 is done in the singular by this fellow that chases after, by Chapes. He searches and he finds the Gavia in the sack of Benjamin. So let me stop here for a moment. We'll come back to this in, in a minute. But if there are any comments or questions, I will take them now. Um, we have a question from Jennifer in the chat. I can read it out. Uh, Go ahead. Okay. Um, what are the parallels between Joseph eating alone and brothers um, eating a meal while Joseph is in the pit? Uh, is there a parallel between the silver in Benjamin's bag and the silver received for selling Joseph? I would say certainly yes in both cases. Those are two very excellent points. For sure, I would say that the idea of Yes, brothers, Joseph was in the pit, they're eating their meal content, and he's in the pit, and we later discover he was crying to them from the pit for help, and they didn't help him. Now, once again, one might say the tables are turned. Again, once again, depending on how you see Joseph's behavior, but certainly here it's all nice and good and wonderful, but at the very time they're eating together, one can see Joseph is plotting. Now, what exactly he's plotting, clearly he's plotting to frame Benjamin. The question is why? That's clear. He's, he specifically orders that the, the goblet be placed in Benjamin's sack. So for whatever reason, and we'll come back to this, because there are two good possibilities of why he's doing it, but certainly he is he's plotting to do it. So what I think can, once again, connect this story, as we've connected other stories, to the initial sale of Joseph, or actually initial attempted murder of Joseph is what it is, and one can see it as payback, payback, justice, however you, revenge, you can read it in a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. so that's as far as the, now as far as the Kesef is concerned, that is very interesting about the Kesef, especially if you assume that the Kesef is setting up, in, in fact, it sets up a very difficult situation. They come on with the Kesef and, and Yaakov suspects that something's wrong, maybe even suspects they sold their brother. So yes, I would say that Joseph's story is very complicated, but I think that certainly there, there is, however you see Joseph's motive, it could be revenge, it could be justice, it could be getting them to consider their ways, it could be many things, but the connection is, is very, is a connection, strong connection. I think that's important. Is there any other comment now? Uh, yes, Jennifer. Oh, I did, thank you, Rabbi Silver. I just had one. Thank you for that. Such a generous yep. explanation. Um, hey, one other question. I wondered, um, here you have the brothers going to sell Joseph, the whole thing at the beginning. And then at the, and then now at the point in the story, we are, they're so concerned that they'd be accused of stealing this money. Is that to say that really they're, they're only, that they were basically good people from the beginning. It was just this jealousy of Joseph that made them commit such a terrible act. Or, or do you see varying degrees of um, morality between each of the, I mean, each of the brothers is different. Uh, you know, the two that want to save Joseph in the beginning and then um, more or less. Uh, and 
yeah, I just didn't know how you interpreted this uh, this concern now about the money and well, he had the a, elevation he had a, of their moral yeah, status yeah. through the story. Well, right. I mean, it's complicated. I think over here, though, the Chumash is going out of its way. No one is singled out. I'll come back. It's brothers collectively. There's no difference between the brothers. I mean, yes, Judah will speak up at the end of the chapter, at the end of this section. Yehuda will speak up, and he suddenly becomes a spokesperson for the whole group. But the point is that it's all the brothers, Joseph and his brothers, and it's all the brothers. And here we come to actually a very important point about the story. You see, the point is, whether, he, whether they know the money's returned or not, personally, I don't see it as they know it's returned yet. He's returning their money, in this case, because he's going to, if Joseph's plan works, Benjamin will be taken as a slave to Joseph, and all the other brothers will go home. When they get home money, yes, maybe you suspect they sold big government. That's possible. On the end, buy, and here's the money back. I didn't charge you for the food. But the point over here, yes, it's true that the word kesef appears in terms of the money, but in terms of kesef, but you also have the goblet. It just turns out that the goblet is also kesef. But here, I think what the Chumash is doing, on one hand, it's equating the kesef, which makes sense if they know, actually, if they know, in fact, that the money was in their sacks, they know they didn't take it. They would presume that Benjamin did not steal the goblet either. But what we have to point out over here is that there's a difference between the kesef, the money on one hand, and the, and the goblet on the other. And here we come to a very important point about the story, which is this. Joseph is framing his, his brothers. And the, when, when someone knows you very well, this is the point, when someone knows you, they're very dangerous because they know exactly your history, they know your weaknesses, the vulnerabilities. The point over here, the brother said, stealing something, steal something. We actually return the money. If we return the money, will we actually take money? That's what goes kind of a kalvachomer, you know? However, the kalvachomer has two problems. First of all, the person with whom the goblet is found never returned any money because he was never there in the first place. Yaman didn't return anything. Yaman wasn't there. So that statement, if we return the money but we steal, wouldn't apply to Benjamin, who never returned the money because he never, he never was in Egypt. So it wouldn't apply to him. But that's one point. But the more important point is there's another point over here. There's a difference between the Kesef and the Gavia HaKesef. The Kesef is money, but the Gavia HaKesef is not about money. It's about stealing some kind of magical object, an object that gives you certain, certain understanding, certain insight, or certain knowledge that others don't have. And here the important point is that specifically Benjamin is the one he's going to set up this way because we have a parallel story in the, in the Torah. This is chapter 44. But we all remember chap chapter 31, that when Yaakov is running away from Lavan, back in chapter 31, Rachel, Yaakov steals the heart of Lavan by telling him he's leaving. That's chapter 31. 
But we're told in the very next verse in chapter 31, that Rachel stole the trafim idols, some kind of idols of her, of her father. Um, this is found in chapter 31. Um, verse number, let's find this, verse number 19 and verse number 20. And Jacob stole the heart of Ramon. He didn't tell him he was running away. So the point of stealing the trophim, it's not just stealing money or taking money. Jacob got rich from manipulating Ramon's flocks. But that's not the trophim business. The trophim, Ramon says it, why did you steal my gods? The trophim are the gods of Lavan, the gods of, of the Aramean Lavan. So Jacob, upon fleeing Lavan's house, fleeing Aram, and going back to his own land, somebody in his family has taken the special sacred object of that culture. And now we have the parallel in our story. The brothers are going home, and suddenly somebody overtakes the brothers. And they, the, the fellow says to them, why did you create good, 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 good with evil? What is this? This is what my man. It's a magical goblet. It's a special goblet of the house of my master, of the, of the viceroy of Egypt. So the accusation here is not about stealing, actually. The accusation is leaving the land and taking the magical object one might even call it a kind of idolatrous object from the culture which you are leaving. So therefore, the Medrash sees this right away. Medrash has the brothers saying to Benjamin, Ganva bar Ganvita, you are a thief, the son of a female thief. You're Rachel's child. Because Rachel did exactly the same thing. Rachel stole the trophim. So yes, even if we assume that the statement of the brothers is true, look, if we, if we return money, are we gonna take money? But of course, the answer to that is twofold. A, Benjamin didn't return anything, but B, it's not about the money. It's not about the kesef. It's about the gavia kesef. It's about It's a dividing cup. That Benjamin could be accused of because his mother does exactly that. We have these parallel stories. Leaving the culture, someone overtakes you, and then the accusation. In each case, one of Ravad's accusations by gods, Rachel the Trophim, and in the case of Binyamin, Rachel's son, the accusation is you stole the divining object of, of my Lord. Of course, Joseph knows this, you see. Joseph knows the family. So therefore, those people are dangerous. They know all your weaknesses. They know all your vulnerabilities. And actually, it puts the brothers, it's interesting, it puts the brothers in a funny situation because he might actually be guilty what will the brother's response be? Now, assuming they, if they know that money's in their sacks, they know they didn't take that. Assuming they know, which is unclear. But in any event, it's not clear. But how will the brothers respond to the fact that this magical goblet is found in Binyamin's sack? Okay, so before I move further, there are a couple oh, of comments it, or questions. Yes, one please. more parallel. Excuse me. Um, one more parallel is the brothers saying, um, whoever, if you find it, that person will die. And that's what Jacob said. 
Yes, so I will get to that. I will so get to that. So they are inadvertently putting Benjamin's life at risk, like Jacob did of Rachel. I, I agree with partially with what you said, and I disagree with partially. I'll get to that next. I'll, I'll get to deal with it when, in sixty seconds. Okay. That. It's, it's a very good point. Yes, of course, it is parallel. I think Wendy had a question. Anybody else? Yes. Wendy, would you like to unmute and ask your question? Um, okay, maybe next time. I think um, someone else had their hand up as well. I think Zella. Yes. I'm not hearing anything. No. Um, okay. Some. Pe I think some people uh, had their hands up, but maybe they don't want to ask their question right oh, now. I'm on now. Oh, okay. There we go. Uh, I I've never understood why Yosef is so preferring his, his little brother, Benjamin, because Benjamin killed his mother. Benjamin didn't kill his mother. I mean, yeah. The birth she, of Benjamin, the birth of Benjamin, she died in childbirth. That's true. No, she did. That's uh, right. That we may all know or think that, well, it could have been because she had stolen the trophy. Right. But, um, you know, and so in a sense by... Uh, uh, Jacob killed her because he put that curse on whoever stole the trophy. But to the, the the big brother, his little brother took mommy away in spades. Okay, look, well, he doesn't blame and Benjamin, been, obviously. And now I'm wondering if this sets up to kind of torturing Benjamin by giving him the, the cup. Okay, I will respond to that in, in a second. Let me just start with the first point, and it's all connected. The point is that the response of Yaakov, as both of you have noted, the response of Yaakov, when, um, when Lovin accuses him of stealing the trophim is, whoever took them should die. That's what Yaakov says. Whoever took them should die. You can go search, he says. Whoever took them should die. That was Yaakov's response. In point of fact, Rachel has stolen them. So he did curse her. Um, that's what Yaakov says. But over here, actually, when the man accuses them of stealing the goblet, the brothers say something different. It's not the same. The brothers say to the fellow, they say, whoever took it from amongst your servants should die. That is the same. However, they don't stop talking. And we also will be slaves. So that's the difference between the two. When it comes to Yaakov, who's the head of the family, mm -hmm. Yaakov did not say to Ravan, listen, if anybody took the trophim, they should die. And you can also hold me responsible as the head of the family. That's what Yaakov did not say. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the brothers over here, they do say that. They say, okay, the one who took it is more severe because that brother stole it. But we are also guilty because we're a family. We're all connected. So we'll also be slaves. The fellow says to them, no, no. In verse number 10, the fellow says, okay, what you say is good. However, let's modify it. Whoever stole it will be my slave. And the rest of you are innocent. Now, so the, here's the very important point about the story. What you see over here 
is that at this point, unlike Yaakov, Yaakov doesn't, it's a problem with Yaakov. He didn't say, I'm also responsible, which he probably should have said because he's out of the family. But in this particular case, the brothers are taking collective responsibility to a large degree. They're saying we'll be slaves. We're all guilty in some sense. The fellow says back to him, no, no, no one's going to die. Whoever took it will be a slave and the rest of you are innocent and you can go home, presumably, etc." So that's a very important point in the story. We saw this even earlier when they found the money in the sack of one of them on the way back. The one fellow opened up his sack by Derech Bam alone and he finds the money. And the brothers say, Mazot Elohim Lana, what has God done to us? Us, plural. They don't say, what did you do? They say, what has God done to us? That's as far as the first point is concerned. Now, as far as the second point is concerned about why Joseph might be doing this, I say might. It's not 100% clear, but what strikes me is actually the opposite of what Wendy's suggesting, which is that I think what Joseph may be doing over here, he might be testing the brothers, but it's also another possibility, which is the point of Binyamin in the story is Binyamin stands in for Joseph. Binyamin is the youngest one, the son of Rachel, whom Yaakov favors. And Yosef might think and might have good reason to believe that Binyamin is in danger. Because Joseph knows his own story. My father favored me, gave me this special coat, etc., set me off, and I never came back. They wanted to kill me. They ended end up either selling me or causing my sale. So I'm gonna make sure I'm gonna liberate my brother from a misguided father and from dangerous brothers. So I'll, 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 I'll frame him, I'll send him all away. I'll take Benjamin as my so-called slave. And when he comes to me, after 10 minutes, when they're gone, I'll tell him who I am. He's already favored Benjamin by giving him five times the portions of anybody else. It's clear that Yosef has a very special relationship to Benjamin, quite clear later on also. So one very strong possibility in the story is that he in fact is out to save Benjamin. That's really a good possibility in the story. It's one of these stories where we can't know for certain, but certainly a viable reading of it is exactly this. Now, is Joseph testing them or not is a good question, but whether Joseph is actually testing them or not is not related to a different question, which is are in fact they being tested, which is yes. There is a test and you see right away that they don't simply say, you know, um, they don't simply say whoever took it is guilty and not us. And then when they find it, they find the Gavia and Benjamin sack. And as I pointed out, we have reason to believe he might actually have done it. It's what his mother did. Um, says, they all tore, tore, tore up their garments. It's a sign of sadness, a sign of mourning. And they come back to the city. That's the first 13 verses. Is what the responsibility of the brothers could have said, okay, listen, you, you, you said we can all go home. We didn't do it. We don't take idolatrous stuff. Benjamin, he's another story. He's like his mother. What can we do about it? But that's not what they're going to say. They're going to say something very different, this is, which is why this is one of the great moments in Joseph's story. These verses, beginning in verse 14 and up to the end of this, uh, this section, which ends in verse 17, is one point. And then beginning in verse 18, we have the great speech of Judah that will take a fair amount of time. But let's at least begin now with verse number 14. So now in verse, verse number 14, 
ויבואו יהודה ויחב ביתו יוסף. Verse 14 begins, Judah and his brothers came to the house of Joseph. So the first thing we notice is that the Torah has singled out Judah over here. Up to that, we talked about the brothers. Now Judah and the brothers came back. So what the Chumash is setting up is that Judah will play a central role from this point on. And we also know why Judah will play a central role because it was Judah who said to his father, give the boy to me, I will bring him back. I take responsibility. If I don't bring him back, I will be a sinner all of my days. So the crisis now of Benjamin and the family is on everybody, but it's particularly on Yehuda. He's the one who made the promise. So the Torah already sets it up. It doesn't say, it says, typical device of the Chumash. Judah and the brothers came to Joseph's house. Joseph was still there, the meal was over, but Joseph was still waiting in the house. And we'll comment about this another time. And all the brothers fall down before Joseph. What is it you have done? Don't you know that a man like me practices divination? Now that could have two different meanings, by the way, two very different meanings. One is, how could you do such a thing and take away my magical goblet? Don't you know how dear that goblet is to me? Don't you know that I use the goblet to divide? In fact, I even use it at the meal we just had to seat you in the right order. That's one possibility. That that means, how could you do this thing? It's not just taking away some any old object. It's an object of great significance, importance to me. There are certain objects that just their value on the, the market, they have a sentimental value, they have an emotional connection, etc. They have a practical use. That's one possibility. And there's another possibility, which is, what's this thing that you did? Do you believe you could get away with it? Don't you know that a man like me practices divination? Don't you know that a man like me knows things that other people don't know? That I know all kinds of secrets? How could you do this? You think you're going to get away with it? That's another possibility. Those are two different interpretations of the verse. In any event, it's a it's kind of rhetorical question, which is always a critical question. It's a criticism. But I want to come back to a different point, very important point about verse number 15. What is this deed that you have done? Because that expression, what is the deed that you have done, is one, and in our studies, we ran across this many times. This is an expression that runs through the entire book of Breshit, beginning in the in, the, in Gan Eden. And God said to the woman, Me'osit, and Pharaoh said to Abraham, Meosita. And Abimelech said to Abraham, Meosita. And Abimelech said to Abraham a second time, Meosita. Uh, to Yitzchak, Meosita. And over here, Meosita. And each time, and, and Yuhan says to Yaakov when he's running away, Meosita. In, in the section we just, we just accessed, we just read. What did you do? Why did you run away? Why did you uh, give me a chance to kiss my daughter's goodbye? Why did you steal away? And why did you steal my gods? And in each case, the person who answers that question, Meosita, the, the, each case is different. 
but there's no perfect response in any case. The best of the bunch is probably Yitzhak, which is the truth. I was afraid you'd kill me. Okay. That's a pretty good answer. But here, what's interesting over here is there is no excuse. In all the other cases, the person gives some kind of terrors, some kind of excuse. Often a good one. But in this case, Judah's response, which was completely different. And Judah said, what can we say to our Lord? What words can we say? How can we justify ourselves? From the word tzedek. So what Judah said to, about Tamar, she's more righteous than I. What does Judah say? There are no words. There's nothing that I can say to you to justify it. God has found out our sin. We shall be slaves to my Lord. And the one with whom is found the, 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 the goblet. You have to think about this verse. It's one of the critical verses in the book, actually. Because in point of fact, um, in point of fact, actually, Judah probably suspects that, that Benjamin did not steal the goblet. Certainly, if, 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 they, if they know of the money in their own sacks, um, if they know, it's not clear, but if they know that, and they certainly know they didn't take the money, the kesef, so they probably presume that Binyamin did also not steal the Gevi'ah HaKesef, although there is a difference, as I pointed out. But the point is, he makes no excuses. Every other person in this book has a terence. The snake made me do it. Nachash made me do it. I was afraid. Whatever. Each one has a terence. I, I did steal away, but I thought you wouldn't let me leave, etc. But Judah has more answers. And the point about Judah having no answers is he probably has a very good answer. Let me tell you something. I don't know. I don't think he actually took it. But what can I say? I think we're innocent. But that's not what Judah says. There's no way for us to see. I'm not suggesting we are innocents. He says that God has uncovered the crime of your servants. Now, what crime is he talking about? Of your servants. Notice the plural. It's not about Benjamin. It's all of us. We are all guilty, and also the guy with whom the, the, the goblet has been found. So we are all guilty. Forget the guy with whom it's been found, he says, not, not who took it, with whom it's been. So I presume the crime he's talking about is not stealing money or goblets. The goblet, I don't know about, but in terms of the everything else, he says we are guilty. But not of what, but not of what you're accusing us of. We're guilty of a different crime, a different kind of theft, one might say selling our brother or causing him to be sold. So he confesses to a crime. That's very powerful because you can, you can give answers. Sometimes someone accuses of something, they have the facts wrong, but actually they're right. I know someone like this. Every time she says something, her facts are always wrong. And 99% of the time, what she says is true. I can't explain it, but that's, that's the case over here. It is true, we are guilty, but not of that crime. But God knows the truth, and therefore we are all guilty. We are all guilty. All of us. We're all we're all in the same boat. Not what Jacob had said: whoever took it should die. We're all equally guilty. The brothers earlier had said the one who took it should die and will be slaves. 
that is assuming responsibility, but not full responsibility. Judas is something different. We're all the same. We're all going to be slaves. This guy who took it, because that's what you, the fellow said earlier, he'll be a slave, you'll go free. No one's going free. We're all slaves. And now Joseph responds. And I'll stop and take comments. In verse 17, Joseph responds. Says Joseph, God forbid. I, I would never do such a thing. Far, far be it from me. Only the one with whom the cup has been found, he'll be my slave. He'll be my slave. And you can go back in peace to your father. So I'll stop at this point before I take comments. This will lead us to one of the great speeches of Sefer Brigitte, which is Judah's speech to Joseph. Um, I just wonder what we get to Judah's speech to Joseph. Judah's speech is an extremely interesting speech and we'll, we'll see it. But if you're Judah, I'll just say one point about what you're hearing over here. That for some reason, and Judah doesn't know why, he can't know why, but for some reason, Joseph does not want anybody to die. Because the brothers had said, listen, whoever uh, took it will die. And we'll also be servants. No, no, no. Uh, only, no, no says, uh, no says the fellow. Whoever took it is the servant and you'll be free. And Joseph says a similar thing. Only the one with whom it's been found shall be my servant, my evid. The rest of you can go in peace. So whatever it is, for some reason, Judah doesn't know, but probably notes it. This viceroy of Egypt doesn't want to kill us. He only wants to make us slaves. He wants to enslave, and not all of us. He wants to enslave this particular fellow. So this will be part of Judah's speech to Joseph, one of the great speeches. He's going to argue, step forward and argue for the freeing of, of Binyamin, and of course, offering to take his place. Now, before we continue, let's take comments or questions of what we have till now. Um, we have some great questions in the chat. Aviva says, the difference between Jacob's and the brother's approach to taking responsibility points to a development from Jacob as a brother who cheated his only brother to his sons who, except for how they treated Joseph, take responsibility for one another. A progression from a lone individual to a family community and eventually a people. That is a very good point. I want to just emphasize the last piece of that. Here's a very important point about the Joseph story. Without this, it's, you can't fully grasp it. The way the book of Genesis works is it's part of the covenantal promise when God speaks of three generations and a fourth generation, the three generations of suffering and the fourth generation shall return. So in other words, there's a difference between the three generations and the fourth. And the way the book works is that over the first three generations, let's say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, one person is chosen. Avram had two brothers, but they're not covenantally chosen. Only Avram is chosen. Avram has two sons, Yitzchak and Yishmael, both blessed. But only Yitzchak gets the covenantal blessing, not Yishmael, right? So then you have uh, Yaakov and Esau. Yaakov gets the covenantal blessing. Esau has great wealth, great power, does not get the covenantal blessing. So it's Abraham and not his brothers. It's Isaac and not Yishmael. It's Yaakov and not Esau. Now you come to the fourth generation. In the fourth generation, Jacob has made a vow to build the bayit, 
which means the inclusive structure. Jacob calls his family the Bayit. And now the Chumash is wrestling with, we know the difficulties of succession, Isaac Ishmael. We know Esav and Yaakov. And Yaakov has favored Yosef. But the point of the story, and this is a critical point, is that it's not about Yosef or the other brothers. That wouldn't be Jacob's mission. Jacob's mission is everybody. It's got to be Joseph plus the brothers. That's the point over here. So one step towards Joseph plus the brothers is some sense on the part of the brothers that everybody's got to be included. In this particular case, it's Benjamin who is set up as Joseph's proxy. You know, it's very interesting in, in Breshit. There, there were six brothers who have, don't play any role, individual roles in terms of the, the narrative. And there are six brothers who play important roles. There's Ruvain, there's Shimon, there's Levi, there's Yehuda, there's Yosef and Benjamin. Those six are in the story. Those are central to the story. The difference is that Benjamin actually never talks. He never says a single word in the story. He's very important in the story, but he never says a word. But he's, he's basically functions as the proxy of Joseph. When the brothers, when Judah says, no, we're all going to be slaves. And then he says, wait, take me instead of Benjamin. What the Chumash suggests is that you are someone who, who would have said, take me instead of Joseph. Because the same, you know, Benjamin is also the favored one, the youngest one, the son of Rachel. So that's a very important step. When it comes to Yaakov and Esav, I think what Yaakov says is problematic. Rachel dies when he says that and all that. But it's still not the same thing because Yaakov and Esav can't actually, Yaakov, Yaakov is, is the one chosen from Brahma. So yes, Yaakov should have taken responsibility for the family. That's the problem there. But it's not, Yaakov and Esav can't be together. You can appease the ace of it with a gift, with a mincha. But you can't just appease Joseph with a mincha because you have to include Joseph. That's the theme of these chapters. Can we actually bring siblings together? Not simple. The first set of siblings was Cain and Hebel. That's a really important point. When the brothers say, we are all servants, we're all avadim, that's a big step in the right direction. What else do you have in the chat there? What other questions? We have a few questions from Jennifer. Jennifer, would you like to ask your questions? Oh, sure. I'll just keep it to one. Um, but thanks. So other people have. Is there um, a connection between the divination here, you know, the stolen, the silver goblet here, and Joseph's dreams as a child that his family will bow down to him? I think there is. I think there is that. I think there are two important connections here. One is, I said before, secret knowledge. Yeah. What Joseph is about, actually, the dreams are a very significant part of the Joseph narrative. Mm -hmm. Dreams and interpreting dreams. You know something the other guy doesn't know. Yeah. And by the way, that's what infuriates the brothers. When, the, when Joseph is walking towards them, the dreamer is coming. When I say to you, you know, I, I know something you don't know. And that is actually can be seen as a hostile statement. That's one connection. That's certain. That's very important. The other thing is, there's another connection. There's one other person in this book who was a minachesh, a diviner, and that's Lavan. Lavan said to Jacob, "He wants that God has blessed me because of you." So the parallel between leaving the house of Joseph with the man with the, the magic goblet 
leaving the house of Lavan, the Menachesh, with the, with, the, with the Trophim, it's a further, it's a strengthening of the further link between these two stories. In other words, I, I, the point I was making is Joseph knows his, Joseph knows the people. That's why he's so dangerous. He knows about Benjamin's history. It's his own mother. He knows the story, presumably. So that's one thing. The other point I would make is a kind of literary point about the Joseph narrative, which is the Joseph narrative, when you read this long narrative, it's completely, it feels totally different than the rest of Bration on several different, in several different ways. Um, the speeches are much longer. There's much more psychology. You get a sense of Joseph as a conflicted person, the trappings of kingship. There's all kinds of things here. But what's amazing is how well integrated the story in, is into, into the rest of Genesis. It's integrated, this is one example, how it plays off the story of Lavan and the Trophim, etc. So at the same time, where it feels like a completely separate story, it is fully integrated literarily into the large, larger themes of Breshi. That, that's the genius of it, actually. I mean, it's an amazing story, but that's part of it. What else? Any other questions here? Um, Laszlo was noting the connection uh, between, I think this was verse 16 and Yom Kippur. Um, I don't know if yes. he wants to unmute well, we, and say more about this, but yeah. That we repeat this phrase, Manit Stadok. Yes, uh, we do. And right. Yom Kippur, you know, when yes, we, we do. Yes, well, Yom and, Kippur is a, Yom Kippur is the day of confession, obviously. It's one of the two main themes of Yom Kippur, one of the three main themes, the Slichot, the penitential prayers, and the confessions. And Judas, my point about Judas' confession is what makes it such a powerful confession is that it actually is a confession about, he knows that they didn't, I, I presume he knows that it wasn't the stolen goblet. He's making a different point, which is the major point of the story, which is there is a, there's, there's, there's an, there's a problem that's been, not been dealt with properly throughout. Yes, the brothers said earlier, we're guilty for our, for our brothers. We didn't hear our brothers cries. There's a process taking place. But it's Yehuda who says, and who understands, presumably, that without confession, you can't get any place. And what he's really doing when he says, which we do say on Yom Kippur, he's actually repeating what, what, is, what is Rebbe taught him back in chapter 38, which is Tamar. Tamar taught him that the only yeah. way to bring a family so it can so, be many. Amen. It's the same, exactly the same Shoresh. In the, in the, in the reflexive form, it gets the tet. But it's Tzadak, Tzadak. Yeah. How can we justify ourselves? Which is what, which he said to Tamar in chapter 38. And he's about to say something else, which is about the Erevon. When he said to his father, Nochi Erevenu, which is to take responsibility. Which is why at the end of the day, in terms of the kingship and the leadership of the brothers, it's going to be Judah. Um, he already was in 38, we already Judah and Tamar, which is the pivotal story because that's sort of that's sort of the solution to the problem in other words, how do you build a family it's got to start with with, 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 with reality, with confession, etc and they, they one other point. Of all the story oh. is the same of Joseph for sure. One other point Rabbi Silver yes. is uh, yes. in, uh, in the beginning in Beratius when uh, we are told of the birth of Hevel uh, Taira uses the words uh, indicating the rivalry or uh, between the brothers as a as a theme that is going to come back and the name of course Yosef. For sure, I think the story of Kai and Behevo is a very important story because it's the first set of brothers, 
which doesn't end well. And the, the Chumash sort of is assuming that there's a natural rivalry. There are two brothers, there's one parent, which is, you know, Adam or whatever, Adam and Eve. And um, so there's a sort of a natural rivalry. And in that case, also God favors one over the other. God favored the sacrifice of Evelyn. God did not favor the sacrifice of Cain, just as Jacob has favored Joseph and not the others. And he demonstrates it by giving him the coat, which was obviously yeah, a terrible mistake. So the stories are very similar. And the question is, can one overcome these natural enmities, yeah. natural rivalries to yeah, build a family? That's a challenge. Yeah. Yes, yeah. thank you for that. Anybody else? Um, we have a question from Susan. If this is what Yehuda thinks, why would he think Benjamin should be included in the punishment? Well, Benjamin is included for a different right. That's true. I'm not, I mean, the point is, the point is, he's not, because the, the, the Gavir was found in Benjamin's sack. There's nothing you can do about that. As he says, Gamashem Nimsah Gavir, he separates the two. We'll all be slaves, he says. But the one with whom it, the, the Gavir has been found, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't protest his innocence. Not because he was involved in the sale of Joseph, which he was not. But because at the end of the day, for whatever reason, the, the, the Gavias is in, his, is, is in his sack. What can we, we can't dispute that. There it is. But he if you were thinking it. about it as a punishment for selling Yosef, perhaps the Gavias should have been in, I, we don't know for sure which brother actually was the one who instigated or whatever, but maybe he should have been in a different, if you know, who does mind, maybe he should have been in a different sack. True. I, 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 what we have to say here, I think, is that they're two separate things. One is the sin of the brothers. Not, not Binyamin. He wasn't involved in that. But the sin of the brothers. We are all Avadim. The same as he's guilty of X, we're guilty of Y. But we're all equally guilty before, before, before God. I mean, that's he can't get Benjamin off the hook. First of all, he has no proof Benjamin did not take it. And as I pointed out, he might have taken it. His other did. Now, she had a reason for taking it, I believe. I believe it's a fertility God. But but in any event, there's nothing you can say. You can't prove no. Joseph says yes. It's 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 he says she says. He says he says. And the he says is the viceroy of Egypt. And Yehuda is a, a foreigner buying food. He has no, I don't, I, I don't believe that he actually. And what's interesting, by the way, is so to return to Susan's comment, that when Judah argues, as he's about to argue in the great speech of Judah, Vayigash, what's curious is what he says and what he doesn't say. Here's what he never says to Joseph in a long speech. It begins with verse number 18, and it goes to verse 34. It's 16 verses. It's one of the longest speeches in the book. It might be the longest speech in the book. He never once suggests that Benjamin is actually innocent. Never. It's quite remarkable. He never, it's a 16-verse uh, argument. He never suggests he's innocent, ever. Because why not? Well, because you can't prove he's innocent. You don't know he's innocent probably is innocent, but because that's not going to work. The, 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 the point of the speech, I'll give you another example of this. I just mentioned this uh, the other day. I spoke to one of the synagogues here in Jerusalem. The story of Joseph, we discussed this earlier in Mrs. Potiphar, when Joseph, Mrs. Potiphar propositions Joseph in chapter 39. And Joseph refuses. He refuses. And he tells Mrs. Potiphar, who, and she talks to him every day. She's talking to him all the time, but he refuses. And he gives her reasons. He explains why. It's not just no. 
Maybe he shouldn't give reasons. Maybe sometimes it's better don't give reasons. But he gives reasons. He gives two reasons. He says, first of all, your husband has been very good to me. He's done so many good deeds for me. He's promoted me over and over again. I can't do this behind the guy's back. That's not right. He's been so good to me. And the second reason is, he says, he trusts me. He leaves me alone. He doesn't, doesn't look at me. He trusts me totally, right? Uh, well, your deity, my bye he doesn't know what, what I'm doing. The guy has trusted me. I, I don't betray a trust. That's what Joseph says. I don't get involved in adultery for two reasons. A, in this particular case, the guy was good to me. And B, I don't betray a trust. So I'm not doing it. He has a third thing, will be a sin against God. What's interesting is in the Megillah, which we're about to read pretty soon, there's a story that's exactly parallel to that, and that's Haman, Mordechai refuses to bow down to Haman. And the language is the same. Those, though they speak to him every day, he refuses to do it. It's exactly parallel. What's interesting is that, as I pointed out, I think, in the past, no, I pointed out in the past, that in the Joseph story, in chapter 39, the key word is vayimayin. There's even a shalshelet on that word. right? He says no. He, he refuses. Then he explains. Vayimayin, he refuses. In the Megillah, though, in the story of Mordechai not bowing down, and the people in the court say, why do you violate the king's command? He refuses to listen. But it doesn't say vayimayin. It doesn't say it. But the word vayimayin does appear in the Megillah, but not in that story. It appears in chapter one. Vashti, the queen, refuses to go to the king's party. He's half drunk with the boys. He's, she's not going there. He's not, he wants to show her off. He's not going. She's not going. They have Vatsma'ain. And the point I think that's important about the Megillah is this. In the Megillah, there's only one person who actually says to I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. Maybe she said a bunch of other things too, but she says straight to his face or, or, or directly to him through to other third parties, I'm not going. Back to my end, I refuse to go. That's not true of Esther. And then it's not true of Mordechai. Esther never said to Achashverosh, you're a bad guy. Who's out to kill the Jews? Esther could have said, dummy, what, what do you think? It's you, it's your signature. What do you mean without to kill the Jews? No, no. Haman, the wicked Haman. Haman is wicked. But Haman has no power to kill anybody. He has to go to the king. The king signs off on it. Why, why does Esther never confront the king? She never confronts him. You know why? Because it doesn't do any good. She has one mission, save the Jews. That's her mission. And you have to play the games of Achashverosh in order to do that. In other words, you can make all kinds of statements. But if you have a goal, and, and, and you have a goal you want to get to, when you deal with Achashverosh, and in many other settings, you have to understand what's possible, what's not possible, what the guy will hear, etc. And that's what Esther does. I mentioned all this as a sort of an introduction to Judah's great speech. Judah never says to Yosef that Binyamin is innocent. You know something? I know this kid, since he's a baby, he doesn't steal things. He doesn't take stuff. He never says that. He doesn't get it, actually. None. Because that's not the argument over here. It's not going to work. But Judah has a different plan. And he, the plan is based on what he knows of Joseph through what we've read so far. He's going to take what he knows of Joseph. And he's going to try to use that to, the, to his advantage in terms of convincing Joseph 
to let Binyamin go and to take Judah in the place of, of Binyamin. So that's part of the genius of Judah's speech and part of leadership, I guess, to figure out what you say, to whom you say it, how you say it, etc. And the one is Benjamin, if they go back home, I mean, Yaakov will probably die. He'll be, oh, he'll be heartbroken, certainly. And Judah has also taken the responsibility. So that's by way of introduction to Vayigash, which we'll start now. Um, we have a few minutes still. So let's, so let's start with Vayigash. Can so I Judah just, has spoken uh, to. Now Joseph says... Is it, is, can I just yes? mention one thing? Uh, yes, sure. Is it possible that this is... Um, that the beginning of, uh, of Judah's speech is the answer to the Chalom of Yosef. Uh, the Chalom of Yosef is Mishtachavim Li. It's the concept of bowing down to me or that one person will become the king as opposed to uh, I, it, whether it's the Bayit or whether the king is... Because he's saying here, and is he somehow rather hinting at Avadim La Adonai, not just La Adoni? Um, uh, in some way, he's he's recognizing from within that uh, uh, this uh, a fatal flaw in the family is that one person is is the is the one for whom. Uh, 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 gets picked out, and that we serve God, not a person. Okay, let me let me let me pick up on Chaim's point. I actually, as Chaim is speaking, he reminded me of, and it's related to what Chaim is saying. Here's what's interesting: when Joseph speaks several times in the narrative, several times, I didn't count them up, multiple times. When Joseph speaks, he puts it in terms of, uh, we have. Last night, what does Joseph say? Hello, uh, God interprets dreams. Tell me your dream. Uh, Pharaoh says to Joseph, I heard you interpret dreams. No, 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 no. It's God who interprets dreams. But then he asks Joseph, and Joseph says, You better appoint someone very wise. It says Pharaoh, Well, if God, if, if God speaks to you, you're, you, you are wiser. Joseph says to the brothers twice, Listen, don't feel so bad you sent me down here. You didn't do it. God did it. God did it. Joseph sees himself he, on multiple occasions. I mentioned five just now. Where he makes the point, yes, it's God who operates, but God operates through me. That's what Joseph is saying, actually. What's interesting about Yehuda is he never mentions God's name except once. There's only one in all of Judah's talk where he mentions God. It's right here. So actually, he reinforces Chaim's point. Said, said Judah says, Whether we're innocent in your eyes, guilty in your eyes, but we, we are guilty in God's eyes, which of course is true, like referring to the sale of Joseph. And that's, I think, a very interesting point about Judah. It's, it's striking with Yehuda that he never mentions God's name. That's not the kind of guy he is. He's a very pragmatic, practical. Uh, he doesn't talk in these religious terms, actually. This is the only place that Yehuda mentions God's name. And it is Viking, given the fact that constant reference to the word Ani. In fact, uh, in the next section, beginning with Vayigash, you have Adoni uh, seven times, and you have Avodecha 13 times. 
of the 13 times, 10 are the brothers and three is Yaakov. We'll get to this. So he's very much understanding the, the, the situation. I am an Ebed here in Egypt. This guy is the Adon. But then it is very striking when he says, what can I say to Adoni? That is, what's the point to tell you? Probably we, we didn't steal it, but but we are we are guilty before God, is what he's saying. And that is actually a very interesting point over here, especially since he says it in no other place. He never mentions the plenty of opportunity. Joseph does it all the time, all the time. That's how Joseph sees himself. So these are two, the two heroes, one might say, have a very different way of seeing themselves. At the end of the day, kingship will come from Judah and not from Joseph. Um, okay, let's at least begin now with, um, you have a couple, two minutes or so. Let's begin with the first verse. Uh, this is one of the great turning points, uh, clearly. Uh, so now Judah steps forward. And next week we will spend the entire time in the speech. Please, my Lord, Adonai. So he, he begins over here by Joseph has given his decree. Joseph says, here it is. He's a slave. The rest of you can go in peace to your father's house. But of course, Judah understands we can't go with shalom to our father because our father says and you bring your head down to the grave and sorrow. So Judah steps forward, which is not simple because he wasn't asked to step forward. He steps forward, but when I say gingerly steps forward, and he makes it clear from the beginning, you, you, you are Paro, or you are Paro's level. You are the Adon, you are the servant, so please let me speak. He steps forward. Yigash often means to step forward in a kind of gingerly way, um, respectful way, etc. And now, beginning in verse number 19, he will give his version of what has transpired over the last few chapters. We'll get to this next week, but I just want to point out, when I say his version, what we're looking for in the speech is two things. First of all, what he does say, and then what he doesn't say. He leaves certain things out. Uh, I mentioned before, one thing he doesn't say is, he never pleads for the innocence of, of, uh, of uh, Benjamin. Never that one suggestion that Benjamin didn't steal the goblet. Never. As a completely different argument, and we'll see this next week. But the argument is based on he's picked up something from the Joseph story. I mentioned one thing he's picked up. Joseph, for whatever reason, doesn't want anybody to die. That's clear. So when the brother said the one who took it should die, oh no, no, the one who took it should be a servant. An evident. It's on the level of evidence. It's not about dying. So that's one thing that Joseph for whatever reason, doesn't, um, doesn't want to do. And the second thing he notices, and I'll stop with this point, is for whatever reason, Joseph has some interest in our, in our father. Because he's asked more than once, how is, the, how is, how is your old father? Your old father, Azokain, is he still alive? Is he still alive? Yes, he's still alive. So we'll pick this up next week. That's what Judah knows, based on what Joseph has said. Doesn't want to kill anybody. He cares about the father. And Judah will, Judah will use this in fashions the speech, which, which works actually. And but in but in, in the process of the speech, we'll see many things about, about the speech. It's a very, very powerful speech. Maybe we'll have other things to say about it as well. So looking forward to next week. Um,
Rabbi Thank Silver, you. you can yes. maybe you can answer this next time. What makes you think that his stepping forward was gingerly? Uh, he spoke in a gingerly way, but uh, he was a man who uh, a man a masculine man, and uh, he would be Very stepping up with. But uh, I'm picking up on the word vayigash. Often the word vayigash, as opposed to other verbs, are often when you have some hesitation. I mean, he has no hesitations, but he's. I'm picking up on the word vayigash, how it's typically used in the Torah. We have, we oh. have to check the other cases. It's based on that. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. We'll pick uh, up next we, week. With the story. Thank you, Rabbi. I have to run, um, but I wanted to say thank you before I just drop off. Okay. You're welcome. See you next time. You. We're hooked. Bye-bye. <laughs> Um, Rabbi, if if people have more questions, where can they email you? Yes, dsilberatrisha.org. Okay. I am I'm, I'm on a plane tomorrow from Israel to the States, so I'll be most of the day won't be. Well, Tuesday I should get these stuff. Okay, I'm great. Flying out, I'll be in transit all day tomorrow. Okay, great. So that is for Charlotte. Yeah, um, dsilberatrisha.org. Yeah. Dsilberatrisha.org. Great. So thank you everyone for joining us uh, and for your incredible questions. Thank you so much Rabbi Silver for that amazing class. Uh, we will see you all next week. If you want to see uh, more of Drisha's uh, fantastic offerings this, uh, this month, including public lectures, private Talmud shares, and um, a Yiddish translation workshop, very exciting. You can learn more and register for those classes at drisha.org. See you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Safe travels.